Welcome to episode 124 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, have you experimented with low carb or the keto diet and maybe had some energy or digestive issues to go along with that? Well, the team at Bioptimizers have got you covered. One of their founders, Matt Gallant, has done keto for over 26 years, but he personally experienced some digestive issues and also found some of his clients didn't get that promised epic energy or experienced elevated triglycerides. So Matt and the team did a ton of research and real-world testing to create the perfect combination of nutrients for optimizing fat digestion, energy metabolism, and fat loss enhancement. It's called Capex, and it upgrades the way your body and cells function on a keto diet. Every ingredient performs a critical role. For starters, Capex helps you break down the fat you eat into tiny fatty acids. Second, It assists in the transport of those fatty acids to your liver and your mitochondria so they can be burned up at an accelerated rate. And third, by enhancing digestion and metabolic energy and function, Capex helps you smash through any fat loss plateaus. Other ingredients in Capex can also help lower inflammation, boost cardiovascular health, regulate cholesterol, and so much more. Capex can bring you epic energy, with no crashes, jitters, or adrenal burnout. They do have a 365-day unconditional money-back guarantee. So if it doesn't work for you, no worries, you'll get your money back. And of course, we have a special offer just for our listeners. If you go to kenergize.com forward slash ifpodcast and use the code ifpodcastkx at checkout, you'll get 20% off any package. That's k-e-n-e-r-g-i-z-e dot com forward slash IF podcast with the coupon code IF podcast KX for 20% off any package. I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now enjoy the show. Hi everybody and welcome. This is episode number 124 of the intermittent fasting podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am fabulous and I am giving thanks for intermittent fasting every single day. Awesome. And that is while I am packing up my whole house. (laughs) Oh, I know, right? Oh, we have a lot of stuff. Today I have been tackling Cal's bedroom. He is the one that's in San Francisco and he's 21 and he lived here from third grade on. (laughs) And oh my gosh, the amount of stuff. But I think I've done most of it. But I'm able to just pack and pack and pack in the fasted state. It's... So great for productivity. Yeah. 
And I'm like a little bit irritated that I have to stop and eat at night because these people want to eat. I'm like, oh, I've got to cook dinner now. I'd like to keep packing. <laughs> Me too. I, I, when I really get into the groove, yeah. especially with my like later circadian rhythm, it'll be like 8 p.m. And I'm like, man, I could just go another 10 hours right now. Like, please. Can I just extend the day? These eaters, these people want to eat. In my head. I'm kidding. I mean, I eat. I want to eat too, but <laughs> they're expecting dinner and I've got to stop and make dinner. Well, yay for intermittent fasting. Yep. What's up with you? So few things. I was listening to a Ben Greenfield podcast the other day, as per usual, and he brought up something I thought we could talk about. You know how we're always talking about genetic data yes. and such? So he talked about a study where they actually tested the placebo effect of genetic data and basically confirmed my idea that it's almost probably better not to know your genetic data because they found that basically what people thought they were genetically predisposed to, that would manifest with physical results. Like they were looking at people who were told that they – were good at some sort of type of exercise, like genetically, it affected their performance. I think the other one was something like people who thought they were genetically predisposed to like being hungry or something like that, it affected their their hunger levels. I don't agree with that because we've got research that shows, like for example, with exercise, I was just studying something about that with exercise and genetic data. And they divided people up into groups based on what exercise was predicted to be good for them and what exercise was not predicted to be good for them. And they didn't even tell them which was which. And they found results from the one that was predicted to be genetically better. Like I literally just read that study. And you're positive the participants did not know? Yeah, they were like split into groups. They tried both ways. They didn't know which was which. But I mean, I do believe the placebo effect is powerful. So I'm not discounting that that would have an effect. But I don't think that we can just discount genetic information as placebo. (laughs) That's the other thing. He was also discussing how, like, how they would run genetic tests from all these different companies and it would show different things (laughs) as well. I feel like, yes, genetics are super duper important, but I think we're like still new at the science. Oh, I agree. We're new with it. We absolutely are very new with the science. And then there's the little issue of epigenetics, which is, of course, what you do changes your gene expression. So we are still learning. And your gut microbiome plays such a role, too, in so many things. Exactly. So like my takeaway thoughts, you pretty much just summed it up. It's basically that, yes, the genetic our genetic tendencies are definitely super important and definitely affecting things. But I think it's almost, I think a lot of people might do themselves a potential disservice if they get genetic testing, take it as absolute truth. And then if they're the type that are going to assume that it's absolute truth and assume that it can't be changed or whatever, I think they could get locked into whatever it says when really it may or may not be a defining factor for something. I don't know how it could hurt you though. Like for example, my friend who just got her genetic profile information and switched to the macros that they recommended. Did I talk about her on this podcast already? Yeah. She, I could, I talked about it somewhere. I couldn't remember if it was this one or or the other one, but she started following the macros that were recommended and started losing weight after being in maintenance for two years. So I I don't see how that could hurt her. I mean, 
Even if it's placebo working, how could that possibly be hurting her? I think it depends on the personality type. So if you're the type that is going to get your genetic data and see it in your favor, make the changes, see benefits on a subconscious and conscious level, how you're interpreting it, and I think the subconscious level is just as important, then yes, I don't think it could hurt you because you're going to see it as a tool in your arsenal. You're going to make it work for you. So placebo effect is going to work for you at the same time. Whereas if you're the type that, and this could change, but is worried about doing something wrong or is worried about doing something detrimental and is worried that you're not living up to your perfect genetic potential based on your genetic data, then I think getting your raw genetic data for that type of person could potentially lock them into like a fear worry mindset or have a a placebo effect on the negative side as well. So I think you need to know like and this is just my thoughts, but I think you need to know what type of person you are. And I was, I was talking to a friend about this. She actually said the exact same thing. She said that for Christmas, she bought her boyfriend a genetic data test and he bought her a genetic data test. And they didn't even realize they were doing that. But come Christmas, they had the same gift. But they both decided not to do it for that very reason, that they didn't want to feel like have the results and then feel determined by those results. So I think it would totally depend on your personality type. I would never even think of it that way. Like for example, if mine had come back that I had a predisposition to Alzheimer's, then I would be glad to know because then I would know, maybe it's because of my understanding of epigenetics that what it shows is not like a a blueprint of like, oh, this is what is going to happen. Instead, I would know, huh, I have a predisposition for this. So it's really important for me to do the healthy things like intermittent fasting that have been shown to help keep our brain strong. And I could work crossword puzzles. And I don't know, I would use it as a positive instead of like a predetermination. Right. So I think you're the perfect type to get your genetic data testing. Whereas I think if you're that other type, and I do think your perspective of that might change and especially could change with things like meditation and things like that. So I I think it really depends on personality type. Well, that's a good point. Oh, I have some really cool research to share. It's about whole body vibration. There's a new study that just came out and this was thrilling. Someone shared it in my group, but you know, both of us have vibration plates And I have a new one that I'm moving to the new house. I got a different one, and I'll talk about it more later. But the company sent it to me and wanted me to try it out, and I haven't had a chance to try it out. Did they really? Is it it like a big one, or is it? No, it's not a big one. It's actually smaller, which actually is better for me in the new house because it will take up less space. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember. I have it packed away, and I can't remember the name of it. Like, I'm not just pretending to not remember the name of it. I cannot remember the name of it. So for a million dollars, I could not tell you the name of it right now. (laughs) But I'll talk more about it later. But someone in the group, since I talked about whole body vibration in Delay, Don't Deny, briefly, I just said that I use one. People like to share information with me when they find it. But this study just came out of the Medical College of Georgia, which is right here in Augusta. And it's part of my husband's university, Augusta University. And they have found the title is, listen to this, whole body vibration shakes up microbiome, reduces inflammation in diabetes. Okay. I saw you post that post. I didn't actually read the study. What did it say? Well, basically whole body vibration. Now this is done with rats. Okay. Keep that in mind. But they were vibrating the little rats and it improved how their body used glucose as an energy source. It helped adjust their microbiome. It helped their immune cells. It deterred inflammation. 
so basically it helped stimulate the healthy cells that can prevent inflammation. So anyway, it's just positive information about vibration and how it related to type 2 diabetes. I love that. I love our vibration. But the microbiome was the player here. For listeners, if you go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 124, that's where we'll have show notes for today's episode. So I'll definitely put a link to the vibration machines that that Jen and I have. Are you going to keep your large one? No, I gave it to somebody. I like posted it in Delay Don't Deny Connect group, which is a Facebook group that we have. And I was like, hey, anybody want this vibration plate? And somebody drove three hours and came and picked it up. I just gave it to her. The reason I really like the big one still, because I have purchased a smaller one in the past that doesn't have the whole get up, is I really like that it has like the handrails and everything because I will, I will also do... It serves as another exercise machine in one in a way because you can do, I don't know what, if there's like a word for it, but you know, push-ups like from the bars. Yeah. This one has like resistance bands that you attach to the base and you use in different ways. Okay. I never touch the handrails and that just makes it take up a lot of space. So I was very excited. I was like, yes, because I don't want to move this giant machine to my new house because I don't know where I'm going to put it. I'm excited to have a smaller one that won't take up as much space. Okay. So I think it comes down to space. Like I said, I have the bigger one with the handrails and I use those handrails. Like it makes it into an even larger exercise workout machine for me. So it's like two in one in a way and also has the resistant bands. I had bought like a smaller one and then I actually just went back to using my larger one. So there's definitely something for everybody. But again, if, if you go to the show notes, I have podcast.com slash episode 124. I will at least put links to the machine that Jen and I at one time both did have, <laughs> the one that I still have and love, and then a smaller one I have used that I like. And then if we do get the information from Jen, I'll put the other one as well. Look for this study. Oh, you're going to put that there. But I think it was an endocrinology. So it's not like it was in some fly-by-night <laughs> you know, journal. This is really legit research coming out of a medical university that confirms whole body vibration. I mean, this, these are just the things they're learning. Imagine you know, what it does that we still don't know yet. I really think that whole body vibration is great for us in ways we don't even know. Oh, hands down. I think it's like one of the best forms of getting that, I'm saying gentle because it's not like crazy cardio running for hours and hours, but you're getting that movement that is just so key throughout your whole body. And then I think it's so important for the lymph system. Absolutely. Me too. And I've talked about this before, but so listeners, your lymph system, which is responsible for filtering toxins throughout your body- What's so important about it is unlike your blood circulatory system, which is pumped by the heart, so you don't actually physically move your blood. Your heart does that for you. Thank you, heart. The lymph system doesn't have any pump system, which I find really interesting. I feel like we would have evolved to have a pump system for the lymph system, but in any case, we don't. So that's why it's so, so important to stimulate it. And I mean, ways you can do that is obviously like massage, movement, physical activity, but these vibration machines are perfect for that as well. Which is why you might actually have a reaction when you start, like you might stir some things up more than you expected and have like a little detox effect. Just be aware of that. Definitely. All right. Are we ready to get into the listener questions? Surely. All right. The first one is from Jackie and the subject is the great one meal a day debate. I'm a little scared. Okay, but before we, before you read this, Jen, now every single time 
people like either knowing or not knowing our previous debate situation, whenever anybody asks a question now where they're like, what is one meal? I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> like, next question. <laughs> no, this is a great question from Jackie. All right. So here's what she says. She says, hi, Melanie and Jen. Your debate was informative and helpful and something I have long been pondering. But you have to revisit this. I have been doing IF since March, and I guess I do an eating window since I usually fast about 18 to 20 hours, but like Jen, I can't get all my calories in one meal, so I usually have something to break my fast, a green smoothie, and then a proper dinner several hours later. So even though I have a four to six hour window, there's usually a three hour break between the two meals I described here. I always thought I was doing one meal a day. I don't really care about the terminology, but how is this different than what you do? You eat veggies to open your window, and then you sort of graze your way through the night, and then have a paleo meal, and then fruit. Why is this any different? You guys have to pick this back up, please. I think you both confused people more than you meant to, and you clearly were not on the same page, which I loved because I think having different points of view is helpful. But is it okay to fast 19 to 20 hours and then still have a break in the window, i.e., one meal at opening and then waiting several hours and having another meal? I have lost 15 pounds, so clearly I'm doing something right, but now I feel like I don't know if I'm getting the fasting benefits. Am I needlessly spiking my blood sugar twice, even if eating cleanly? True one meal a day is fasting 23 hours and eating one. I did try that, but I couldn't get enough calories in. That's why I moved to a four to five hour window. Please revisit this. Thank you for all that you do. I am obsessed with your podcast, Warmly Jackie. And before I turn this over to you, Melanie, I'm going to 100% disagree with that one statement that she said. True, one meal a day is fasting 23 hours and eating one. I think that is not true. But that is the definition people have like somehow come up with that they think it has to be 23-1. I mean, that's 23-1. It does not have to be. You know, one meal a day, I wouldn't call that true one meal a day. That's 23-1. If you want to do 23-1, that's fine. <laughs> but that doesn't mean like that's not the true one meal a day. I just had to say that. I'm actually just going to say no comment because I would actually prefer not to even discuss the semantics of it if you're open to that. I was actually hoping we could discuss like the the implications of the the insulin and blood sugar, like the question that she was asking because I do think that would be something really interesting to revisit. And the only reason I'm saying no comment is because I don't want us to, because I know you and me, and I know that if we start discussing like semantics, the episode will be over. Well, I know that you don't think that one meal a day is 23-1. I mean, I know that you agree with me on that. You don't think there's true one meal a day that's 23-1. I think if you're doing 23-1, it's probably materializing as one meal a day. I don't think one meal a day has to be 23-1. Correct. Yes. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So same page. Yeah. I mean, 23-1 is going to be one meal a day, but one meal a day doesn't have to be 23-1. Yep. Yay. We're on the same page. We completely agree to that. I just, you know, I think there's some kind of a a thought out there in the world that unless you're doing 23-1, like that that's one meal a day. And 23-1, I mean, I would not recommend somebody do 23-1 long-term. Really. I think that's when you get into trouble. I think your body could adapt to 23-1 a lot easier than it would with a flexible approach. So I just want to throw that out there. I think basically for me, it's like you're either counting meals, you're counting hours, or you're counting time on the clock. That's the way I see it. And that's the way I broke it down in my book. Regardless, I will say before I jump into the insulin stuff, and by the way, 
we had this question from Jackie. <laughs> We've had it on the to-do list for like weeks and weeks, but I kept wanting to do more research. So here it finally is. But Jackie, right now I'm not even doing the fruit in case you're wondering. Right now I'm pretty much doing, it materializes into about probably like two hours of eating. But in any case, so I did a lot of research on how meal timing and hours and especially eating, stopping, and then eating and things like that affect insulin because I do think that is something really important. And I was just going to stop there, but then I decided to read the diabetes code, which why it took even longer. But I was actually really sad because he doesn't really talk about that at all. I mean, he talks about insulin for the whole book, but he doesn't really talk about at all the acute insulin release and effects. He talks about it more in like a general perspective and hyperinsulinemia and insulin over say 24 hours and how fasting and food choices affect it. But he doesn't really talk about it in an acute meal situation. So like how is what you're eating, especially because he's focusing on low carb as well, but um, you know, how is eating and then stopping for, you know, a few hours, then having something else, which might be like, you know, a snack and then you're stopping and you're having a meal. How is that affecting insulin compared to just having all of your food at once without having that break? And then also how do the macronutrients affect that? And that was my question, which I sat down to tackle. And I basically, before I go into what I found, I will let you know that my takeaway was that it's very complicated and individual, but I think it actually does affect things. So for starters, before I go into the specifics, I will reveal some interesting general overviews about insulin. I would like to point out that I think might change people's or might shock some people's perspectives of insulin because I think a lot of people have a very black and white view of insulin where it's like, you're fasting, there's no insulin. You eat carbs, there's insulin. <laughs> and that's like the picture. Jen, would you agree that? <laughs> yeah. There's like this horrible, horrible diagram that goes around that shares like fasting by the hour. And it says, it says like your body stops all insulin production. I'm like, oh dear God, y'all stop sharing this. And people share it like every day. And they're like, can someone tell me to share that again? It's really good. I'm like, stop sharing it. It's like my, my, mission in life is to get people to stop sharing that because no, unless you're type one diabetic <laughs> with a, not a functioning pancreas. <laughs> yeah. That would be the exception would be type one diabetes where you're not producing insulin. All insulin production stops, it says, or something like that. Yeah. Because actually only about 50% of our total daily insulin is in response to meals. That's verbatim from a scientific study. And for listeners, the show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 124. I will put links to all of the studies supporting everything I'm about to say. See, Butter Bob has this video I've talked about before called Insulin and the 50% Problem or something like that. But yeah, he, he cites that study. So I'm familiar with it, that our bodies have a baseline level of insulin. Yeah. And it's it's different from person to person. And that is why some people start intermittent fasting and have trouble. Some other takeaways about insulin, the liver does clear insulin faster when fasting which the fact that it's clearing insulin when fasting would insinuate that you have insulin when fasting. Something else that was interesting was 
for those who have chronically high, and this wasn't discussed in the context of fasting, but for those who have chronically high fatty acid levels, which I think could be the case for oftentimes people who are doing like a low carb diet and fasting because they're running on those fatty acid, fatty acids in their bloodstream. I guess it could depend on like to what point they're doing, to what extent they're doing running off of ketones, but that actually raises the overall basal insulin rate, but it decreases the body's insulin response to glucose upon feeding. So that was a little interesting takeaway. And then in case you're wondering, and Jen, you probably knew this. So almost all of our cells do require insulin to take in energy. The exception is actually brain and red blood cells. So I really wanted to know. I was like, I want to know how different eating patterns while eating affects insulin production. So what's really interesting, it's that it's generally accepted that there's a two-phase response insulin response from the pancreas. It's called the first and second phase insulin release. And basically the first bite of food you have for the first five to 10 minutes, that's the first phase insulin response. And that's where the pancreas shoots out this huge dollop of insulin to take care of it. And what they think, it's like speculated that it's like insulin that's like primed, like docked and ready. Like the ins- like the pancreas has this insulin ready for when you eat your food and so it releases it. And then as you continue to eat, then it has to like produce more insulin and it does. And that's the second phase. And that insulin, the pancreas keeps producing that insulin as long as the meal is continued and the nutrients are coming in that are requiring insulin to take care of them. So what was interesting was one study was discussing it and then it said that that had like a lot of implications about insulin, but in a real world setting, it was unclear how that would actually affect anything. But in any case, I couldn't find, I like searched so much. I couldn't find any awesome, clarifying, definitive studies showing how eating a quote snack and then waiting a few hours and then eating a meal would be different from eating a meal within an hour or eating a meal over four hours. Like there wasn't anything looking at just that. Most of it was looking at how different macronutrients and also a little bit of timing affected things. So I'll just tell you what I found. And I think the takeaway will be that it's really complicated. (laughs) But for example, one study was really interesting. And it looked at how different meals, like two meals, basically, it looked at potatoes (laughs) and whether or not they had butter with them. So like a low fat, high carb potato with or without butter and how the timing, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to read the specific details, but how did the timing of having like a potato with butter and then, you know, just a potato or like a potato with butter and a potato with butter or no butter and then butter later? Like how did that affect insulin? How did that affect the glucose response? How did it affect fatty acids? And some of the takeaways they found was that the participants would have elevated free fatty acids on the second meal if they had fat 
on the first meal. And by the way, these two meals were four hours apart, which I think are very applicable because a lot of people will do a quote one meal a day situation in like a six hour window. So it could manifest this way. So they found that even if they didn't have fat on the second meal, if they had fat on the first meal with the potato, it created elevated free fatty acids on the second meal, which was indicating some sort of insulin resistance. Like the body wasn't quite dealing with it quite as well. So like the takeaway I was thinking about that was I think for some people, and it's really complicated because they were just using, you know, butter and potatoes. And it's like, how can you translate one thing to another? But I think for for some people, you know, it might be the case where if they have some sort of like fatty snack to open their meal and then they wait a little bit, like even if it's like four hours, that is might to some capacity affect their insulin sensitivity on that actual quote meal later. And so the takeaway being that eating in chunks and eating different macronutrients seems to create different insulin patterns. We also know, for example, with fat that in general, adding fat to a meal does create a sustained insulin release, but it it tends to be not as spiky. So if you're having like fat with your meal, you might have a longer release of insulin, but at a slower, more sustained rate that might not be fluctuating your blood sugar as much compared to not having fat with a meal. And especially if it's like higher carb might create like a higher insulin spike, but then that would be attenuated much faster. And one of the reasons they think that that might be could be due to delayed gastric emptying. So basically the fat is slowing down the processing of the food and that's why you're having a longer sustained insulin release. I know that was like a lot of really specific stuff, but I think the takeaway here there's no blanket statement I can make or no yes or no, or no, this pattern is going to create a certain insulin response for one person and not for another. But it does seem that there is likely a difference in how insulin is released in your body and the implications of that. If, for example, you have a quote snack, especially depending on what the macronutrients are, wait a little bit, have a meal, you probably are going to have a different insulin response to that meal than if you had not had the snack prior. At the same time, if you're having, quote, one meal over a couple of hours, the macronutrients of that meal itself and the ordering of that the macronutrients even, it's also probably going to affect insulin. So there's actually not, I can't really, there's no take no black and white takeaway, like I said, but I do think what this implies, especially in the one meal a day paradigm, regardless of semantics of what we're calling one meal, what we're calling a snack, what we're calling hours, what we're calling windows, is that that is something to consider when you're setting up your eating plan in your intermittent fasting window. Something I think, especially when it comes to satiety and insulin regulation, I think something that people could play around with and we've, and I don't think Jen and I have actually ever probably have a little bit, but I don't think we've gone into it in detail, but something that could be played around with is the ordering of whatever you want to call them, but the snacks, what you're opening your window with, what you're ending your window with. If you're having it all at once, if you're having it in chunks, there's not a lot of research to say how that is going to look for every individual, but I think for the individual, it's something to experiment with. I feel like I just wrote a a college paper. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Do you have thoughts? Well, you know, I'm going to go a completely different direction. 
And that is, Jackie, I want you to learn to be an intuitive, intermittent faster that isn't worried about, like you said, what we call it, or whether it's a snack or whether it's a meal or whether you're having one meal a day or two meals a day or whatever. I'm with you in that I couldn't eat enough food in an hour a day to sustain me. Even two hours a day would not be enough for me. I wouldn't be able to eat enough food in that amount of time. So for me, I generally start with a snack, like, you know, and it's usually it could be a small snack, but some days it probably is a large enough snack that someone would look at it and say that looks a lot like a meal, but it doesn't matter. I listen to my body and I eat more on those days. And then how long is it until I have dinner? Well, it depends on what time I had the snack and what my family's doing. And is my husband teaching a lab that day? And I 0% time my window based on I wonder what is happening in my body right now with my food. That is never something I even think about ever. I don't know what my glucose is doing or my insulin is doing, and I don't want to know. I just eat if I'm hungry and if my husband is there and dinner is ready, and I stop eating when I've had enough. You know, the other day, I ate my dinner, and a couple hours later, I was like, I am starving. I realized, you know, what I had eaten had just not hit the spot. So I ha- had some more food. And it. I just want you to, like I said, I want you to work on becoming an intuitive, intermittent faster where you can trust that what you're doing is fine. And, you know, you don't want to overeat within your window. We know that. You don't want to eat more food than your body needs. But really listen to your hunger and satiety cues. And if you're somebody who starts off with a snack and then later you eat your meal and that feels right to you, that's good. There are some people, though, when they start with a snack, they tend to gorge, and so that doesn't work well for them. And then some people do better if they actually start with their meal and open their window with that. And then later, if they still need a little something, they can have it. So really focus on what feels right to you. And I think the big takeaway from both me and from Melanie is, you know, we don't care what you call it. You need to make it fit your life and feel right to you. And also understand that maybe one day you are going to do 23-1 because that's how your schedule looks. And then you had enough and you were finished. And then the next day it might be 18-6 because that's what you needed that day. And it is absolutely okay. Eat what feels right to you and then stop eating. Yeah, exactly. I think getting to that intuitive space is the key and it's the goal. And like you said, Jen, we don't know at any given time what's doing what. So I don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to address that regardless of whether or not we know what's going on, that there, especially for people who are not super insulin sensitive, that yes, the timing and combination and macros of a meal likely is going to affect your insulin production, which might have very could have huge implications of how well you respond to a meal, how well you do with fasting. While the solution might not be, oh, let me go test my insulin and see how I respond to this. When you can't even test your insulin. Right. But knowing that that could be a factor gives you freedom to play around and see, okay, so do I feel best opening with this sort of, with like a fatty snack and then a meal later? Or like, is it better for me to do it more altogether? And so yeah, it's very intuitive. It doesn't really change anything we've said about being intuitive, but I just want people to know there is something there, which obviously there's always a reason there with everything. Yep, good stuff. But yeah, we always have 
a baseline level of insulin. And that is why, you know, I talked about this in the troubleshooting chapter of Delay, Don't Deny, that if you're somebody who's been overweight for a really long time, if you have type 2 diabetes, I mean, definitely, you know that you've got a problem with insulin. But if you've been overweight for a very long time, you probably do. And so you probably have higher baseline insulin levels than someone who has never had a weight problem. I mean, you do. You're going to. And so you're going to have to focus on getting your insulin down because hyperinsulinemia is a problem. Too much insulin is connected to so many of our diseases of modern day, and it's too much insulin. So fasting is the best way to get your insulin down, but you may need more. And I talk about this, like I said, in the troubleshooting chapter of Delay, Don't Deny. You know, I love my carbs, and I think that carbs are delicious, and I don't think that everybody in the world needs to be low-carb. I don't think that's some kind of universal best plan. But I do think that a lot of people could benefit from a period of time of low-carb to get your insulin down lower. And and it doesn't even have to be forever. I interviewed someone on intermittent fasting stories who has lost well over 100 pounds, and she did keto at first with intermittent fasting. Then she did more of a low-carb approach, and she's been able to gradually reintroduce carbs as her insulin resistance has healed. And now she's a normal weight. She enjoys carbs. She's still carb choosy, but she she used it as an intervention to get her insulin down. So, you know, if you're somebody who suspects you have high insulin, just like Melanie explained, you need to work on getting it down. Yeah, and actually to that point, I actually had a whole another topic I wanted to discuss, but I'm going to save it for next week because we talk so much about this now because I actually wanted to readdress our previous conversation about like fat and carbs and how easily do carbs become fat because People were asking about that in the Facebook group and they wanted more details. And so I did even more research on it. I'll table that for a future episode, probably next week. But like, for example, kind of similar to your point, Jen, using a low-carb approach as a therapeutic tool to fix that hyperinsulinemia situation and then go back to a a higher-carb state. Similarly, because I was researching carbohydrates and de novo lipogenesis and the tendency for carbs to become fat because people have been very shocked by what I was saying about how carbs don't easily become fat, which I stand by and the further research I did further confirmed. Really interesting takeaway that is actually very similar to what you just mentioned about the hyperinsulinemia was one study, for example, was saying how for fatty liver, for example, that you know fatty liver is often very easily can happen, especially in a high carb, high fat situation even though carbs themselves don't easily become fat, having them together, you know, can really create this fatty liver situation. But even though carbs don't easily become fat, it's said that fatty liver actually reverses faster on, rather than going like super high carb, low fat to clear the fatty liver, actually going high fat, low carb actually clears the fatty liver faster. Because it gets your insulin down and it gets you, yeah, and your body starts burning up that that fatty liver. Yeah. So the reason it's a complicated caveat is that, and it was in the context of the study as well, of the fact that actually carbs themselves don't easily become fat. So you, with that understanding, you think, oh, maybe going super high carb, low fat would be also a really effective way to clear fatty liver, which you can do it that way. I think just going back to what you're saying about the, the low carb approach, even if it's temporary as a tool, could be a great tool 
to address your insulin levels, also address something like fatty liver, and then ultimately in the long run, definitely bringing carbs back in. And then especially when you're like, quote, I want to say cleared out, which is like, I don't know, it's very casual terminology, but you know, cleared out your liver, cleared out this excess insulin. I think a lot of people could benefit maybe with a higher carb, lower fat approach, which a lot of people think they need to be low carb for life, high fat for life, when maybe the opposite might be, a lot of people actually might be more long-term, a, a way to go. And, you know, we've talked about before about how keto didn't work for me. I tried it the entire summer of 2014 before adding back carbs and going to intermittent fasting, and I finally started to lose weight. But I do think that that period of time when I was eating keto style, I think that helped me in a way with my my insulin levels. And so even though I didn't lose any weight because of the way I was eating, it didn't work well for my body. I do think it probably helped me when I made that transition. Yeah. And I think also that's probably, I think a lot of people can get really therapeutic benefits even from like a carnivore diet, for example, maybe not for life. Although a lot of people now do seem to be on the, on the train for life. I can't even imagine. No, I'm sorry. Anybody who, who does it and loves it, I believe you and I trust you and I'm glad you love it, but I cannot imagine it. I cannot imagine it. <laughs> I can. <laughs> I cannot. I could imagine being a vegetarian for life a lot sooner than I could. I just, <laughs> but I mean, I absolutely 100% believe that people feel great doing it when they say they do. I just can't. That would not, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like therapeutically, I think it could have the double benefits. A, everything we just talked about with insulin, fatty liver, things like that. And then additionally, I think a lot of people with autoimmune type conditions just can really help them identify what may be causing a problem and then also gut healing. But by the way, listeners, I have an entire episode coming up on the carnivore diet on the Melanie Avalon podcast. So definitely get excited. Hi guys. So intermittent fasting automatically takes care of what not to eat during the day. But what about when you do eat? Do you struggle with meal planning, trying to decide what to eat, how to manage your time, coming up with recipes, anything like that? If so, PrepDish is totally the company for you. They're not a meal delivery service, but rather a meal prepping service. What they do is they provide you weekly with grocery and recipe lists so that you can easily go to the store, get all of your ingredients at once, do all your prepping at once, and be good to go for the week. And better yet, if you're trying to make healthier choices in your intermittent fasting lifestyle, they are gluten-free and they also have the option of paleo and keto as well. So if you've been dying to try out the paleo or keto lifestyle, they can make it absolutely a breeze to jump on board. We so often get questions in our Facebook groups asking for advice about preparing meals. PrepDish is the answer. They have absolutely amazing recipes. Think things like cucumber dill salmon with cauliflower couscous, butternut squash, caramelized onion and blue cheese tart, Italian turkey meatballs with sautéed Swiss chard. So if you'd like to make meal planning and meal preparation one less thing to stress about, PrepDish is the solution. And guess what? You can try them completely for free. Yes, completely free. Try it out and see if you like it. PrepDish is offering our listeners a two-week free trial. Just go to PrepDish.com slash ifpodcast and you will automatically get two weeks free. We also find that a lot of listeners love PrepDish because you can get access to a whole library of recipes depending on your subscription. You have a whole library of recipes at your disposal. Again, that link is PrepDish.com slash ifpodcast for your two-week free trial. Now I'm going to let Jen tell you all about one of our other favorite products. 
You may have heard me say before that I was having no luck finding a natural deodorant that worked for me. Then, one day, a friend of mine recommended Native. I placed my first order, and I was hooked. Native is formulated without aluminum, parabens, or talc. It's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, which is antimicrobial, shea butter, which acts as a moisturizer and emollient, and tapioca starch, which absorbs wetness. It's made in the USA with ingredients thoughtfully sourced from around the world. But the best part is, it works. Here in Georgia, it gets hot. And if a deodorant can work during a Georgia summer, you know it's a winner. Normally, I'm very sensitive to fragrances, but I love Native's options, many of which are seasonal and limited edition. My favorite scent is their most popular, coconut and vanilla. They also offer an unscented formula and one that is baking soda-free for those with sensitivities. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code IFPODCAST during checkout. You'll receive free shipping and returns, so you have nothing to lose. You can also subscribe and save 17% on recurring orders. That's nativedeodorant.com. And remember, use promo code IFPODCAST to save 20% on your first order. All right, so the next question comes from Jenna Beth, and the subject is closing eating window fears and overeating slash mindset. Jenna Beth says, Hi, Melanie and Jen. Loving the podcast. I have a question about when the eating window is due to close. I can fast, no problem. That is the easy part. It's closing the window that I find the hardest because mentally I feel like I have to cram as much food in as possible because I'm fasting tomorrow. I have a late as possible window as I prefer to keep my window late. I was just wondering if you've had any advice on getting over the mindset of having to overeat at the end of the window. Thanks, Jennabeth. All right. That's a great question. And I wonder how long Jennabeth has been fasting because I would think, just I'm predicting because she didn't really say, but I would predict that she's early in the process because this is the kind of thing that you worry about in the beginning. You realize that you don't have to do it. I tell people, don't eat for future hunger, eat for current levels of hunger. And here's something that is true for me. I actually have found that if I eat a giant meal right close to bedtime, I'm likely to be more hungry the next day. So just keep that in mind. You might actually, if if you're like me, eating, you use the word cram, cramming in as much food as you could, could actually be making the next day's hunger worse. So try that and see. See if, if eating less food actually makes you less hungry the next day, even though it sounds counterintuitive, because I get it, that mindset at the beginning, you're like, I'm gonna be fasting, I better fuel up. But remember this, you're already fueled up. You fueled up a long time ago when you gained the weight. And so your body is carrying that around. That fuel is already there. You want to tap into that fuel. Yeah, I thought this was a great question. I agree as well, Jen. Actually, it's interesting. I've I've changed. And I think it has to do with how my metabolic efficiency has changed based on especially when I started like playing with fasting and eating more during the day and also eating things like nuts and (laughs) stuff like that. I found that in the past when I would overeat or eat more that I was just full for like ever and ever and ever, which I think is the, should be the response you should have because you're having all this excess fuel. When I think I got like less sensitive metabolically, less flexible, 
what you said, Jen, like when I would eat more, I would actually almost be hungrier the next day. It's almost like you've conditioned your body with shoving all this food in to just run off of shoving all the food in rather than having an adequate amount to suit your body and then letting it effortlessly tap into the fat stores. So I agree there. Something, a little trick that actually really helped for me, Jennabeth, because I completely know what you're talking about where you feel like, oh, I'm fasting, so I have to eat, 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 eat. So I have to be ready. It's like a mental trick. But instead of thinking I have to eat a lot because I'm fasting the next day, think ahead instead of to the fast, think ahead to eating the next day. I I don't know if I can like really explain it, but it's like, so instead of thinking, oh, I'm fasting tomorrow, thinking, oh, I'm eating tomorrow. (laughs) And then that actually I found really helpful. And then something else. So I'm not saying that this is like a a binge eating disorder or anything like that, but there's actually a really, really fascinating and helpful book called Never Binge Again. And the reason I think you'll find it super applicable is because it addresses that voice in your head that's telling you eat, 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 even though you might not be hungry, regardless of whatever the actual literal motivations are behind it. And it's really, really funny too, because he calls like that voice, the pig voice. And it's, the audiobook is so funny because he, he says all of these things that like the voice says like, oh, and all of the excuses it comes up with, like in this situation, it'd be like, you need to eat more because you're fasting the next day. But all these other really crazy things. But um, it's actually, regardless of if you have an actual binge eating disorder or something you struggle with, it's very, very helpful for dealing with that drive to want to eat more in that moment when you don't need to be eating more in that moment. And it's very clear. It's, it's very short. It's like three hours or so. Has like like one like practical thing that you could do is you make your lists of like never, always, conditionals, and unlimited so you could you can make your lists of like never so i will never well like with fasting you could do something like i will always fast or an, a conditional will be like i will always fast unless it's you know like a special occasion but it actually is very very applicable to the fasting lifestyle i believe but i think Jennabeth, you might find it really really helpful for addressing that voice in your head that's making you want to eat more when you don't necessarily need to be eating more so i definitely would recommend checking out that book I will put a link to it in the show notes. Again, the show notes are at ifpodcast.com slash episode 124. Awesome. So the next question comes from Marilyn and the subject is itching. And Marilyn says, hello, great podcast. I've been doing IF since July, 2017. After six months, I achieved my ideal weight. I follow delay, don't deny way of eating. Right now for two weeks, my side belly, belly pouch from two pregnancies and my back are very itchy. I think itching under the skin. I still have stubborn fat there. It's worse at night before I take a shower. So I keep on scratching it until rashes and redness comes out. Have you had this experience related to IF? I can't wait for this to end. Any remedy recommendation? Thank you. All right. Itching. What are your thoughts, Jen? This is a great question. And I actually experienced it as I was losing weight. And here's what I figured out. It was happening in the areas where I was shrinking the fastest because it would kind of move around. Like there would be times when it was my belly. There would be times when it was my thighs. And I really think that it was my skin responding to the fact that I was losing fat in that location. 
And other people have talked about this phenomenon and, and we've discussed it in the Facebook group. And they're like, oh, yeah, I think that's it. So, I mean, there's lots of reasons why we, we might itch. But think about if that's where your body might be releasing some fat, perhaps your itching is relating to you are deflating. Think about, you know, a balloon that's deflating. Your skin is deflating because you have less fat and they're plumping it up. And that would cause the itching. What do you think, Melanie? I'm just curious. So why... So why would that cause itching? I'm just wondering. I, well, could you- because your skin is like changing. It's like shrinking up. And so it, it itches. I'll tell you what my first thought was before, before I do that. I wish they would do scientific studies on the whoosh effect for reals. Because the more I think about it and the more I read people's hypotheses. What, what's the plural of hypothesis? Hypotheses. I mean, you know what I think the whoosh theory is, right? You know what I think it is. The lymph system. I think it's the lymph system retaining the fluid. That's what I think. It's, I don't think it's your fat cells. I think it's it's your your fat cells have released a bunch of stuff, perhaps even toxins. And so your body retains the fluid within your lymph system. And then it's like flushing. You know, your lymph system is like the drain of your body, like the sewage system. And so it's like then whoosh, whoosh, you're flushing the toilet. I mean, you know, think about that. You're flushing it all out. And then your body releases all that liquid at one time. I think we're going to one day understand that it, it's the lymph system. Yeah, I think the lymph system theory is, I mean, that's really fascinating and actually relates to my initial thought with her question was that the itching was possibly related to toxin release from from the fat stores rather than just the skin per se, that if those fat cells are releasing some sort of toxin in them, that, that I could see how that could easily create itching. So that was my initial thoughts. As far as like the, the whoosh effect in the lymph system – I definitely think that's a possibility. My only question is, so for example, we were talking about like the HCG diet, you know, recently on a podcast episode and how a lot of people on that will say that they have these not losing weight or like retaining a lot of fluid seemingly. And then they do, you know, a steak day, like a no carb day. And then they do have this quote whoosh effect, which makes me think that would support the idea that it is the fat cells themselves filling up with water and then doing that low-carb approach just rapidly pulls the water from the cells. Well, you know, that has to do with your glycogen storage too because your glycogen – I think that's your glycogen stores, the low-carb wishing, because you retain water with, with the glycogen. Well, I think that, but I think a lot of times people, when they'll do like a no-carb day like that, they'll see a very – like topically, they can see a difference in their – their fat cells on their, like seemingly on their body. Whereas you're not going to, the losing the water weight from the liver glycogen would affect the scale, but seeing a difference. And your muscle glycogen, don't forget about that. You've got glycogen in your muscles as well. Right. But doing like a, a no carb day for one night, for example, is probably not going to deplete your, your muscle glycogen because that's reserved for activity compared to the liver glycogen, which would be drained first. Um, but you wouldn't actually like see the, the water storage of the liver glycogen compared to like the water stores in the fat cells. And it seems to have that draining effect. And I don't see how doing like a, a steak day like that would be affecting your lymph system. I think if anything, it would be doing the opposite. Well, I just know that like people with lymphedema have so much visual swelling and puffiness all over their body. 
and intermittent fasting really helps them with that. Like people will talk in the groups about how they have lymphedema and then the fasting has allowed their ankles to change, you know, instead of being so puffy and swollen. And that's the fluid being retained. We retain a whole lot of fluid within our lymph system. You know, like when I got off the cruise ship, I was super duper puffy. Like my feet, like I could feel my my ankles. I could actually, I was retaining fluid all around my ankles. And that's, you know, your lymph system. In addition to that, though, like I was saying at the beginning, I really wish they would do a study, though, or some sort of scientific research on uh, the fat cell. And I wish I could just find some information on a scientifically credited source. Yeah, I haven't been able to. Which I don't know why, because it's a very fascinating thing to consider. But the actual literal fat cell, does it, when we drain it from fat, does it have this point where it fills with water and then releases that water? Because that seems to be the general idea with the whoosh effect is that there's a fat cell. It is full of fat. We drain the fat from it through dietary means, fasting, whatever it is. Then the hypothesis from all the, the internet speculators is that this fat cell in a way wants to be there. So it's like filling up temporarily with water while it's like in a way, waiting for more fat. And then if you like wait it out, eventually it releases that water. Actually makes a lot of sense to me just just thinking about it, but I don't know like actually if that's happening. I'm also really fascinated by this idea that, and I will not talk about it too long, but this idea that we don't ever lose fat cells because that doesn't really make sense to me, especially because I was reading that fat cells are replaced, like all of our fat cells are replaced, which means at some point they go away and then the body replaces them. But if, you, if you're if you not providing all of the calories and incentives for the body to create new fat cells, I don't see, I, I don't see why it would be this idea that you have a set number of fat cells and you'll never lose those fat cells. Yeah, I don't believe that either. I think we've touched on this before. But autophagy brings something new to the mix. Our bodies, we know, we now know that our bodies break things down that we don't need anymore. And if we are doing intermittent fasting and we have increased autophagy, why would our bodies not break down the fat cells eventually that they're just sitting there? I I really feel like that's one reason intermittent fasting is different. You know, maybe if you're doing a typical low-calorie diet, maybe you're not going to access those leftover fat cells as easily, but I think intermittent fasting changes what's going on. Yeah, and then also to that point, I do think – I think this actually ties in a lot to why it's so hard to recover from yo-yo dieting because at the same time – so I do think we can lose the fat cells, but I also think it's very likely that when we have these fat cells, our body wants to retain them. You know, like it's going to be very, quote, hesitant to get rid of them because they are an evolutionary mechanism for storing excess fat, especially, you know, with the hypothalamus and how that all comes into play. It's very likely that your body wants to retain these fat cells. So I can see how people can obviously, it can be so hard with yo-yo dieting because if you get into this this pattern, especially where you're going into really hypercaloric, even if it's like a binge eating type situation, but if you are creating new fat cells, then when you go back to your diet and you lose the weight, now you have more fat cells and your body is trying to maintain more fat cells than it was before that. So it's it's like each 
potential yo-yo can make it even harder to get back, not that we should be looking back at who we were before, but can make it really, really harder to get back to a point when you had less fat cells than before that. So yeah, it's it's all, all very interesting food for thought. Yep. I think so too. I think there's a lot we don't know, but it's fascinating to think about it. It's also really fascinating, all of just the the black and white objective things people say. <laughs> you know, the, I think that's been like the takeaway of this episode with insulin. You only have insulin when you're eating or you only have a set number of fat cells or only, you know, I, when it's just, it's more complicated than that. So, all right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions to the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. You can also go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. Oh, this is something I meant to tell people. So I just realized in the Himalaya app, which is an absolutely amazing app for following all of your podcasts, keeping everything in one place. If you're a podcast listener, get the Himalaya app. You won't regret it. It's amazing. And I just realized yesterday or like two days ago that I'm so excited. It has a dark mode. I didn't know that. It's hard to find because, so it's not really intuitive because it's not like under settings, but if you go to, if you have the Himalaya app and you go to profile in the the bottom right corner, you can switch on a dark mode, which is super, super great, especially if you want to take charge of your circadian rhythm and things with light hacking. And if you're listening at night, you're going to love that. So definitely check that out. But also if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you will get early access to our show 24 hours in advance. So that is amazing. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast, and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I think that was it. Fascinating. We're getting into so many nuances, and I really enjoyed it. I did too. I, I love just reading all the studies and everything. Me too. And, and finding Me too. out and- finding out like what's really happening compared to what people say is happening. Yes. And then you're like, you see someone giving advice and you're like, that is not true. That is not true. Stop telling people I know. that. <laughs> like, stop. But it's, it's really, really hard when, especially culturally, when things are just so accepted. And just repeated. Yeah. Like the whole, you know, autophagy begins at, at 24 hours. No, it doesn't. Stop saying that. Somebody said it in a video and then everybody repeats it and it's over and over. Well, I heard. And then they all just say it and then everybody's like, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I mean, it's <laughs> then everybody knows it's true, but it's not not true. Or it's like it's like it took so long to change the low fat paradigm, but then we got I think the low carb paradigm which has the exact same problems with it. Yeah, and then now people are like I'm not losing any weight, what should I do? And people are like add more fat. I'm like, "Really? No, that's not the advice stop, I would stop, give stop, to somebody stop. who's having trouble losing weight." <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then somebody said the other day they're like, "It is impossible for your body to store excess fat after you eat it." Somebody said that in a comment to somebody else. Yeah, that's just crazy. And I'm like, "Where do you get the idea it is impossible to store excess fat as fat on the body. If there is one thing we know, it is out of fat, carbs, and protein. The substrate most easily stored as fat is fat because it's already fat. And your body's like, I'm just going to shove that over here. And then it's like dealing with the carbs and it's dealing. Yeah. So, 
Overeating anything is not a ticket for weight loss, no matter what macro it is. I mean, there is no such thing as a freebie macro that you can overeat and not have a problem. Overeating is not a good strategy. <laughs> we should have a um, like a top 10 or top five, either like fasting myths or like myths or really you know, bad nutrition things. advice. Yeah. Yeah. Should, that would be we could fun. do another one of it. You know where we come up with our little lists? Yes. That would be fun. We should yeah. do it. So future episode. Lots All to right. do it for sure. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful and I will talk to you next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.